Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Ready, Set, Israel. A UN nuclear watchdog has uncovered further evidence that Iran is enriching uranium at a level past the standards set by the 2015 nuclear deal. Israel's economy has partially reopened to fully vaccinated Green Pass holders, nearly half of all citizens. The International Criminal Court opens investigations into Israel. What are they investigating and how much does this have to do with bias against Israel in the international arena. And in campus news, on March 3rd, the University of California, Los Angeles student government unanimously passed a resolution accusing Israel of ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. I'm Simone Stoyan. And I'm Eitan Rosenfeld, and we're joined by our co-host, Gianna Michelson. Stay with us, and we'll break these stories down for Ready, Set, Israel. In 2018, President Trump made the shocking decision to exit the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the 2015 deal that relieved sanctions on Iran in exchange for a halt to its nuclear program. Since then, Iran has continued to act in violation of the 2015 agreement. Just this week, the UN nuclear watchdog International Atomic Energy Agency found that Iranian nuclear base Natanz is enriching uranium with advanced centrifuges at a level beyond what was permitted in the 2015 agreement. The JCPOA allowed Iran to enrich its uranium to 3.67% purity, yet these new centrifuges are reaching 5% purity. Another plant, Fordo, is enriching up to 20% purity, closer to the 90% that is necessary to make nuclear weapons. Iran denies that it might be building a nuclear weapon, but it's important to continue monitoring these activities. During his campaign, President Biden promised to re-enter the JCPOA in exchange for Iranian compliance but he hasn't taken any steps to do so thus far. Iran sees the U.S. exit from the deal and subsequent actions as necessitating a U.S. first move to relieve these sanctions. This has created a standoff. Let's go to RSI Executive Director Eitan Rosenfeld to hear more. This week, we brought back Grisha Yakubovich, RSI correspondent with us. Grisha, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me again. Grisha, we've been hearing about this for years now. We always knew that there was going to be some kind of break in the deal. How alarmed should we be by the recent acceleration in the Iranian uranium enrichment program? What are the chances that the Biden administration blinks first and eases sanctions as a way to get Iran back to the negotiating table? You know, it seems like you are asking what if and what if when and how we are already there. The administration is already blinking, okay? Let's, let's just talk about money, okay? The uh, administration uh, led by Trump, but Trump implemented sanctions on Iran and he started to close the flow of cash, you know, clean dollars uh, to the Iranian government. Right, strangling the economy. Yeah, yeah, it pushed them to the corner. And suddenly last week, the Iraqi government is paying $1 billion to the Iranian government for natural gas that they need to buy from Iran. Come on, guys, Iraq, they can supply gas to the whole Middle East. They need to buy it from Iran. Now, we all understand that this is uh, probably payment for Shia militias or uh, somebody on the backside of this negotiation pushing somebody else to deliver money to an Iranian government that they need badly, they need that money. And you know, to do what? To pay the money to the Houts in Yemen, to pay the money to Hezbollah in Lebanon, to pay to their proxies that they will continue doing the job. 
guys, it's $1 billion. So it's not about if they will blink. They are already blinking, unfortunately. We know, we, we've seen this since 1979, since the Iranian revolution. Iran has vowed to destroy Israel. They say it in their social media. They say it, uh, they say it in, their, in their public media. The threat that a nuclear Iran would pose to global stability. Does Israel expect the United States to strike Iran if they get too close to a nuclear threshold? Or is Israel on its own? To be honest with you, Aidan, something really bad is already happening. Let's take as an example only the attacks that the Houts in Yemen are attacking Saudi Arabia. The biggest ally of the United States in the Middle East are being attacked by a proxy of Iran, Houts, that the United States just recently took them out of the list of uh, international terrorists or something like that. So it's like you're giving a gift to somebody in the middle of a negotiation. It's like you're giving him a price and you expect them to sit back to the table of negotiation. This is, this is a language, okay? This is a different language. This is a Western language. When you are talking to an Eastern language, especially Shia and Iran, that all they want to do, you just, you just said it, they want to destroy Israel, and they consider the states, you know, as the devil. And from, from, from what I see, from the blinks that I see, from the response that I see, I understand that the only one that will be able to defend themselves is Israel against Iran. And I believe that something big is about to happen. Grisha, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This past Sunday, March 7th, marks the day that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced the reopening of the Israeli economy. Restaurants, event halls, gyms, bars, and more are now open for the first time in months, but only to green pass holders. Essentially, individuals ages 16 and older who have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19 receive a green pass that allows them to engage in various activities not permitted for unvaccinated individuals. Not only has Israel outperformed the rest of the world in vaccinations, but it is now becoming a test group for the ethical, logistical, and legal issues arising from what will essentially be a de facto tiered system for vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. To unpack this issue further, we have our second guest with us today from Israel, health reporter at the Jerusalem Post, Rosella Terkatin. Rosella, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's good to be here with you. Yes, amazing. So happy to have you. So over half of the population in Israel has gotten the first dose of the vaccine and over 40% of Israelis have received the second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, far exceeding the vaccination rate of any other country. Rosel, have you been vaccinated? I have. Yes. That's, that's amazing. It um, is. Very jealous. <laughs> so yes. to begin, can you tell us why Israel has been so effective at vaccinating its citizens against the coronavirus? So, first of all, we have to understand how the Israeli healthcare uh, system works, because Israel essentially um, has four healthcare providers that, even though they are public organizations, they compete between themselves as, as private companies. And therefore, they always try to offer the best service. And they have a very close relationship with their with their customers. Um, they're also very uh, present in all uh, in all the country's territory, and therefore they are the ideal uh, the ideal 
um, organization to distribute the vaccine. And the logistics has been very, very successful because of that. Uh, we have to also remember that Israel is a small country, only in, uh, roughly 9 million uh, people live here, and that also helps. And, uh, and of course, this idea of providing, uh, providing a, a test, um, as a, serving as a test country for the world for the vaccine, and therefore providing crucial data to the pharmaceutical companies that have been also very, very successful. Absolutely. And you're right that Israel has a very unique healthcare system. So that seems to definitely been, be helping. Moving on, what moral, ethical, and perhaps other questions are raised by this new Green Pass system? And does Israel expect any backlash by citizens against how this system is being rolled out? So this is a very interesting question. When the first discussions about the Green Pass system uh, began, they, the, the idea was that the, the system, the, the Green Pass, would be granted to those who are fully vaccinated, those who have recovered from the virus and therefore are considered, you know, immune. Um, but also um, a rapid testing system would be set up for those who can't or don't want to be vaccinated uh, to have a temporary um, Green Pass and access the same venues. When the system uh, was actually launched, the, this third option was sort of like set aside. And uh, for, for, a few, for a few days, I really remember like uh, several health officials, including uh, Health Minister uh, Yuli Edelstein saying, we are not, we're not willing to provide all these tests and uh, you know, this huge effort for people who, who don't want to, va to get vaccinated. If people don't want to get vaccinated, they, they, you know, they shouldn't go to their gyms or you know, to, the, to a theater performance and so on and so forth. But lately, actually, in the past few days, this has changed again. So Israel is currently working to set up a system so that also people who are not vaccinated are going to be able to get tested and receive a temporary pass. And in the past few days, really, there's been an emphasis in saying we're not trying to trick people to manipulate people into getting vaccinated. We're trying to persuade them, but if for whatever reason they don't want to, we're not gonna force them to do it by sort of like blackmailing them. And this is also very important for, you know, for people who cannot be vaccinated, like children un under 16. And, you know, Israel is a very family-oriented country. And therefore the idea of not allowing children where their parents are allowed uh, was was a big problem. So they're trying to solve this. So my my expectation is that ultimately there's not going to be such a big backlash if the system is set up quickly as 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 it seems. It's going to be another two three weeks, but uh, but this should happen. Okay, very interesting. I guess we'll have to wait and see. And it does sound like Israel has really thought of everything. So it's also worth mentioning that Israelis are headed to the polls again on March twenty third. Do you think that the introduction of the new Green Pass system will have an effect on how Israelis decide to vote? Well, I think that the, the authorities are really working on making sure that Israelis can vote uh, in, you know, in, a, in safe conditions. There are going to be more, uh, more polling sta poll stations. There are going to be more There are going to be specific um, locations where people who are uh, either sick or in quarantine are going to be allowed to vote. Obviously, you know, the, the right to vote is not uh, dependent on having a green pass or on being vaccinated or, or, or anything. Um, 
But I think that the fact that the country is moving in a direction where more and more people are vaccinated and more and more um, uh, sectors can sort of like resume activities that also thanks to the green passport is definitely like uh, making people feel, uh, I think, more, more, more uh, comfortable in going out and do things and, and therefore so to vote. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll, we'll again have to see what happens on March 23rd. Well, thank you so much for your time. And that's Raisa at Israel's Rosella Terkatin. Now, on to Eitan with our next story. On Tuesday, the Palestinian Authority Prime Minister told his cabinet ministers that the PA will cooperate with the International Criminal Court's probe against Israel and Hamas over alleged war crimes in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. This comes after the ICC chief prosecutor announced last week that she would open an investigation into Israeli and Palestinian actions in these respective areas during the summer of 2014. Israel and the U.S. State Department condemned the announcement of this investigation, which came less than a month after the court determined the acceptable territorial scope of its jurisdiction under the Rome Statute and decided to launch a probe. PA's announcement to cooperate with the investigation and the subsequent Israeli condemnation comes after a five-year preliminary investigation into Israeli and militant Palestinian actions in the territories. The ICC previously indicated in 2019 that an investigation would likely focus on the 2014 war between Israel and Hamas, Israeli settlement policy, and the 2018 Great March of Return protests. With us is Natasha Hasdorf, London-based barrister and director of UK Lawyers for Israel. Natasha, thanks for being with us. Good evening, Eitan. The first question relates to the overall jurisdiction of the court in this investigation. Is Israel party to the ICC and do the Palestinian territories meet the international criteria to qualify as a state? So no, Israel is not a state party to the ICC, and that is the central issue in this developing saga because of the question of jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is key because it's what separates a legal institution from a political one, and it's what gives the court legitimacy to engage. Now, the International Criminal Court is a relatively new institution. It's based upon a treaty called the Rome Statute, and primarily it gets its jurisdiction over people and crimes from the states that sign up to that treaty. The idea behind this is that these states delegate their own jurisdiction to the court. 123 countries are state parties to the Rome Statute of the ICC and have done this. The controversial issue here is that in 2015, the PLO purported to join the court, calling itself the State of Palestine. Now, the Palestinians do not qualify as a state in international law. Simply calling yourself a state is not sufficient. International law is actually quite clear on this. The four criteria for statehood set out in the Montevideo Convention are widely recognized as constituting customary international law. So a state has to possess a permanent population, a defined territory, government, and has to have the capacity to enter into relations with other states. And the Palestinian autonomy does not meet the international criteria for statehood. The decision of the pre-trial chamber last month sought to sidestep this problem when it was asked by the prosecutor to rule on the question of jurisdiction. And it did this by saying, we're not determining statehood of the Palestinians for the purposes of international law, but for our purposes, only for jurisdiction under the statute, 
and assessing whether the Palestinians can be considered a state party. Now, the majority in the pretrial chamber making that decision turned international law on its head. They were called out by the dissenting judge, Judge Kovacs, and he said, I find neither the majority's approach nor its reasoning appropriate in answering the question before this chamber, and in my view, they have no legal basis in the Rome Statute and even less so in public international law. That is about as severe as judicial denunciation can get, and it takes remarkable chutzpah for the court and the prosecutor to take this approach, totally upending the rules of international law in order to pursue Israel. Now, the approach unfortunately ties in with what has been reported about the close cooperation between the prosecutor's office and the PA, not least what was being reported this week, that the prosecutor gave the PA advance notice of the decision to formally open the investigation, but asked them to keep it secret. Information straight from Riyad al-Malki, the PA Minister of Foreign Affairs. But the bottom line here is that there is no jurisdiction in this case. The claim that the court has jurisdiction in this case is contrary to fundamental and universally accepted principles of international law. It's contrary to the status of the territory and Israel's sovereign rights there. And it's contrary to the agreements entered into by the Palestinians in the Oslo Accords, the very agreement that established the PA. It is the clearest indication that the court is now a political institution because the law has been thrown out of the window. So, Natasha, given these facts, why is the ICC launching this investigation? And what are the potential consequences for Israeli nationals? So I think we need to understand that the court was established 20 years ago, arguably with the best of intentions. Its purpose was to bring the perpetrators of mass atrocities to justice, to prosecute crimes committed by nationals of states that have joined the court, or crimes that have taken place in the territory of states that have joined the court. But even then, only when the state itself was unable or unwilling to investigate the matter. The types of crimes within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court fall into four categories, the crime of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. The court suffers from an abysmal record. Already 10 years ago, it was being resoundingly criticized for spending nearly a billion US dollars and taking a decade to deliver its first judgment. And the constant criticism since has been that the court's focus has been on Africa. The handful of successful prosecutions have been of African defendants. So the court clearly is seeking to pivot, shake off that criticism with the political selection of defendants. And it's doing so by going after non-state parties, Israel and also the US. Going after non-state parties is a lot easier politically for the prosecutor's office than investigating issues pertaining to member states of the court. Now, the prosecutor has set out the supposed crimes being investigated here, starting on the 13th of June, 2014. Why is that date particularly interesting? Why did the Palestinians pick this date in their referral to the court? Well, because it's the day after three Jewish teenagers were kidnapped and murdered by Palestinian terrorists. And the Palestinians want to put that abominable crime outside the scope of the investigation and have the prosecutor focus instead on the 2014 protective edge operation. 
The other issues the prosecutor has set out concern Israel's response to the Hamas operation along the Gaza border fence between 2018 and 2019, which they dubbed the March of Return. And the other crime the prosecutor highlights, if you can believe it, is the presence of Jews in the disputed territories. Now, this actually goes back to an issue that caused both Israel and the US to refrain from joining the court in the first place. Israel had been significantly involved in the preliminary discussions around forming the court, but there was a telltale sign that this was going to be a political institu institution, not a legal one. And this was the insertion of a brand new crime introduced into Article 8 of the statute, that of the indirect transfer of people into occupied territory, a political invention for the purpose of targeting Israel. It was an obvious attempt to criminalize the settlement of Jews in the disputed West Bank and in East Jerusalem, making it a crime for Jews to live in the old city of Jerusalem. Now, in terms of practical consequences, the court has previously made it clear that it prefers to go after what it considers to be the big fish. So it's anticipated that it will be selecting officials, ministers, military commanders for its investigation. And the consequences may indeed be warrants for the arrest of Israeli nationals. Now, arrest warrants can be issued under seal, so the public and the subject won't know about their existence. And the rationale behind that is that the unsuspecting individual might travel to a country, a state party of the court, say, not knowing the dangers and may be arrested and taken to The Hague. But there are also importantly consequences for the court, if you ask me. Uh, from this approach of throwing international law under the bus, destroying any semblance of integrity the court may have had, and this has serious implications for its reputation. The new prosecutor, Kareem Khan, who begins his term in June, most likely intended to rescue the court from growing condemnation. If this formal investigation continues, I'm not clear that he can. Critics of the ICC probe have cited the investigation as a Palestinian initiative to bypass direct negotiations with Israel and appeal for Palestinian st statehood and legitimacy by taking advantage of the anti-Israel bias in international forums. What do you think, Natasha, is the, the court investigation means for the future of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process? Well, perhaps the most telling sign is that Hamas celebrated the decision of the pre-child chamber last month. It welcomes the investigation, so it clearly does not think that its members are in any danger of prosecution. I think the fact that you have a terrorist organization celebrating this step and Western liberal democracies lamenting it tells us all that we need to know. Clearly, it is pushing peace further away. But the tactic that you describe here is not a new one. There is an infamous op-ed in the New York Times from 2011 by Mahmoud Abbas, where clearly he set out his agenda on this. He said Palestine's admission to the United Nations would pave the way for the internationalization of the conflict as a legal matter, not only a political one. It would also pave the way for us to pursue claims against Israel at the United Nations, human rights treaty bodies, and the International Court of Justice. Now, that was Abbas's declaration of lawfare, the abuse of international legal institutions to continue to wage war against Israel. And it has been incredibly successful because underpinning everything that has been happening, for example, at the ICC, 
is a deluge of propaganda and misinformation from tens of so-called human rights NGOs, civil society organizations, whose raison d'etre is to publish misinformation about Israel and international law and to manufacture these allegations of war crimes that the court now takes into consideration. Now, this has been over a decade in the making and the damage it is causing, not just to Israel, but to the rule of law is immense. The actions of the Palestinians are also in breach of commitments under the Oslo Accords, and these are legal obligations under agreements that the Palestinian courts have recently held still to be in force. It is appalling bad faith. But the key issue here with respect to the peace process, I think, is a practical one. Because negotiations between the Palestinians and Israel have to be based on reality. Starting off from a position of fantasy is going to end in failure. And what the Palestinian leadership have done at the ICC is promoted a narrative that is based on fantasy and the rewriting of history. I think that is incredibly harmful to a positive future for both Israelis and Palestinians. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us on Ready, Set, Israel. Thank you, Eitan. Now, onto the campus segment. On March 3rd, the UCLA student government passed unanimously a resolution accusing Israel of ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. It also promoted a BDS resolution that was passed by the student government in 2014. The Jewish at UCLA condemned this resolution and expressed in a statement their disappointment as the resolution was deliberately hidden from them, preventing them from engaging in the debate. Joining us from UCLA to discuss this issue is Sean Lavi, a proud third-year UCLA Jewish student. Good morning, Sean. First, I want to ask you, can you tell me more about this resolution? Is this the first resolution that SJP has tried to pass at student government? Uh, good morning, Eli. Uh, you know, honestly, SJP has been a very active club, uh, but they have been very silent this past year, which is why we were so shocked by the resolution this past week. The Jewish community said in a statement that they were disappointed that the resolution was hidden from them. Uh, can you tell me how did that happen? The undergraduate council has a tendency of making very long meetings, making it very difficult for many students, Jewish or not Jewish, to attend those meetings. Unfortunately, we didn't know about it in advance and couldn't be at this meeting to say anything. We want to create as many coalitions on campus with other clubs for our intention is to just make campus at UCLA a safer place for the Jewish students. And we want to work together with the entire campus to ensure that this becomes a reality. But now, what's the game plan of the UCLA Jewish community? Uh, is there anything that students on other campuses can do to help? There's gonna, we're going to do one thing and one thing only. And we're going to stand tall and be proud of our Jewish heritage and identity and ensure that the current Jewish generation and future generations are able to live safely and happily on their campuses and, and without the fear of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic attacks, attacks against their culture and heritage. Going forward, we need to do more to organize and make sure that we do have a greater Jewish student advocacy group in our campus government and on every campus. Yeah, well, you said that so well, and I think it is a lesson for every Jewish student on campuses around the world that we must continue to stand tall and stand proud and take action. 
and it's a great way to end the segment. Sean, I really wanted to thank you to join us today. Uh, this was really great to hear uh, what you guys are up to at UCLA. And that's it for today. Ready, set, Israel!